0: A sheriff's office changes its drug policy to address the opioid crisis. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office will finally allow its deputies to carry a drug used to reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. We talked to a mother and a doctor to find out how the policy change impacts the community. Also, school is back and so is the logistical stress surrounding it. We hear about some of the concerns teachers have going into the school year. Finally, scammers from across the country seek to take advantage of a settlement fund from the Surfside tragedy. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup after the news. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. In response to a national opioid epidemic, the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office said it will allow its deputies to carry Narcan, the brand name for the drug naloxone. It's a drug used to reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. The decision comes after years of protests from addiction recovery experts and families of overdose victims who advocated for the use of Narcan. So is the policy change a short-term solution or a long-term one? And moving forward, how does this impact the addiction recovery community? Have you or someone close to you recovered from addiction? Do you work with those who are recovering? Add your voice to the conversation. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now is Maureen Killian. She's a mother who leads the Southeast Florida Recovery Advocates, and Dr. Mark Slosser. He's an addiction medicine physician who helped develop opioid response programs at the Healthcare District of Palm Beach County. Thanks for joining us, Maureen and Dr. Slosser.
1: Great to be with you. Thank you.
0: Uh, let's start with you, Maureen. Um, Maureen, your son has a history, has had a history with addiction. Earlier this year, you, alongside families, And addiction recovery experts held a demonstration outside of sheriff rick bradshaw's office urging him to allow his deputies to carry narcan how long has the community been urging pbso and what does the policy change mean for people who are currently suffering from addiction
2: um we've been advocating for well over eight to nine years now um asking for the sheriff's PBSO, the third largest law enforcement agency to carry naloxone. And um, we're so relieved, very relieved, um, that he changed his stance and will, you know, equip his his deputies with uh, naloxone. Uh, Moving forward, um, what it means to the community is, uh, you know, the calls from parents whose children have died or their mothers have died or their brothers or their sisters or their grandparents overdosed, Hopefully that will lessen when our first responders arrive first um, in most cases before EMS arrives.
0: Yeah. And and did you expect PBSO to change their policy on Narcan medication?
2: Honestly, I did not after all these years, you know, but we were just not going to give up um, because it's so very, very important. It is a standard of care now, a, a standard with law enforcement, and a standard for uh, citizens and civilians, you know, to have Narcan on them or in their car in their house, anywhere, because it, it could happen to anybody.
0: Right. And again, you've been knee-deep in, in into the community in regards to ra- raising awareness. Uh, there's been a wave of opioid deaths, often mixed with cycle stimulants uh, rising in Palm Beach County. Overdose deaths in the county were up nearly 30 percent In the first two months of 2022, compared to the same time last year. Uh, That's according to the Palm Beach County Medical Examiner's Office. Uh, Maureen, what are some of the social or economic factors contributing to the uptick?
2: Um, I think it's just that we, uh, the medical community, and we as a community need to wrap our arms around addiction itself, regardless of the drug, um, and actually treat uh, addiction as a medical condition and not, you know, just dismiss it and, you know, go home, you'll get over it. Well, it's not like that. And now with the increase in the stimulants and the fentanyl that's happening um, in across all drugs, um, you know, you don't have to be an addict to overdose, you can be a recreational user and and overdose. So everyone, everyone should be carrying uh, naloxone.
0: Now, the sheriff's office previously claimed that the fire rescue and paramedics routinely arrive at overdose scenes before PBSO deputies uh, 99% of the time. And it was one of the reasons they claimed as to why they decided not to equip their deputies with Narcan. Uh, my investigation found that their 10 year old study making that claim was actually unavailable. Uh, And now in a letter to Palm Beach County Commissioners, the sheriff's office said it will conduct a three year study surrounding the effectiveness of its new Narcan policy change. How confident are you with this particular study?
2: Um, I have uh, total reservations about it because of the struggle that we had to go through to validate, you know, the statement that's been thrown back at us for eight years that EMS arrives within seven minutes. I even question seven minutes why is seven minutes acceptable you know why not five you know so that is very concerning um and i will keep on top of that as all of my mama bears who are supporting this effort will also be on top of that and we're also very concerned about um the sheriff's budget request um uh, you know for the two hundred thousand dollars is very very misleading
0: yeah let's get into that Th- that particular decision also comes after a discussion surrounding PBSO's $724 million spending budget at the county uh, commissioner meeting last month. Um, A PBSO top aide essentially said equipping deputies with Narcan was unnecessary, which obviously sparked public outrage among residents. Um, And now the Narcan deployment will require a separate budget of about $200,000, as you mentioned. Um, County commissioners will discuss funding that budget that budget next budget hearing what are your thoughts on that separate budget
2: well the cost of narcan to pbso and law enforcement in florida is really zero so um it's covered by the florida department of health hero program so we're not real clear on what this two hundred thousand dollars will cover and you know everybody says well nothing's free and that's correct however we have a um a dad who lost his daughter Uh, who runs a nonprofit out of orlando victoria's voice and he's like a uh a very wealthy hotel owner in orlando and he is working with the florida department of health and the hero program to equip our deputies with uh naloxone additionally there's opioid abatement dollars coming down the pike from the numerous lawsuits purdue pharma johnson and johnson myelcroft mckesson cardinal um and in florida attorney general moody's uh, memorandum of understanding signed by Palm Beach County. It does include page 24 H1 of that MOU includes uh, first responders, law enforcement uh, be equipped with NORCAN. Um, so the abatement dollars are earmarked for it. So we we really need some clarity on the $200,000.
0: Yeah. And it looks like we'll get some clarity at the next budget hearing uh, from Palm Beach County commissioners. Uh, I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office decision to equip its deputies with Narcan, a drug used to reverse the effects of an opioid uh, opioid overdose. Call us now at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Palm, Beach County Sheriff's, uh, Palm Beach County Sheriff Rick Bradshaw declined WLRN's invitation to join our program and told WLRN that the recent public memo addressing their policy change speaks for itself. Uh, Dr. Mark Slosser, are you there? Yes, I am. Yes, um, Dr. Slosser, you've helped develop opioid response programs at the Healthcare District of Palm Beach County. Let's discuss how opioid treatment works. Uh, how is it designed to rapidly rever- reverse opioid overdose?
1: So first, a shout out to Maureen and Sephra. I know I've seen her in action over the past many years. And it is, you know, from people like her and her group that has uh, had uh, Rick Bradshaw evolve in his thinking on Narcan. So, so Narcan is naloxone and it is a life-saving medication. So when an opioid is on a new receptor in the brain, it starts to cause decreased respiration. And Narcan has a greater affinity or stickiness to that same receptor. So the pharmacokinetics causes that opioid to be kicked off the receptor so that the breathing can start again. So it is critical that someone who is overdosing on an opioid be given Narcan, and whoever gets there first should call 911, and then administer uh, Narcan. And you know, with the drug supply now really uh, consisting of fentanyl, and actually fentanyl with with other. Um, agents that are in it, like xylazine, which is a veterinarian sedative, it is more and more dangerous for, you know, the street use of fentanyl. And we have to be as proactive as possible and make sure that Narcan is available everywhere um, that, that, that anyone can administer. It. You don't have to be a professional.
0: Right, and, and you make a great point about the potency of it right now. Uh, nearly two-thirds of the sheriff offices in the state do issue Narcan to their deputies and train them how to administer it, according to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Uh, Dr. Slosser, does the medication work immediately after administering it, and are there many ways to administer Narcan?
1: Yeah, I mean, Narcan can be administered uh, IM or IV or even into the bone Um, or in the nasal, which is the most common. And it does work very quickly because it has uh, this competitive advantage over the opioid that's sitting on the receptor and kicks it off. One of the unrecognized uh, consequences of fentanyl is something called wooden chest syndrome. And that is when someone has a reaction to the fentanyl that actually causes their diaphragm and their Intercostal muscles, the muscles uh, between the ribs, to be paralyzed, and that can cause sudden death. And we need to, you know, start to recognize that and have the medical examiner kind of report that out, with, because with all the adulterants that are now in the the uh, drug supply, illicit drug supply, we are, you know, seeing you know, increasing. Uh, fatal overdoses, and we have to be really proactive.
0: And so, in, in the past, uh, uh, PBSO cited liability concerns for refusing to allow deputies to carry Narcan, but police are essentially protected from liability by Florida law. Uh, you're, you're saying there are some adverse side effects after administering the medication?
1: No, no, not not from administering Narcan. There aren't any side effects, and um, fortunately, so that it can be administered by anyone. You don't have to be a professional, and it should be administered as quickly as possible, but 911 should also be called in case there is something else that is you know, another adulterant, which is gonna prevent the, the uh, person that's overdosing from being able to stop breathing on their own.
0: And, and for those who just joined us, what's the name of the syndrome called again?
1: Wooden chest syndrome.
0: Wooden chest syndrome. Now, now the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office is the largest law enforcement agency in the county, and it oversees the county's jail system. PBSO says providing their deputies with Narcan, quote, falls short of a long-term solution to the addiction problem, end quote, and says there uh, should be more emphasis on education, prevention, and treatment. Uh, Dr. Schlosser, excuse me, are long-term solutions um, what are some of the long-term solutions that could address the opioid addiction?
1: So, opiate use disorder is a medical problem. Uh, unfortunately, it happens in the brain with the receptors. And once the receptors in the middle of the brain have seen opioids, especially the ones that get there very quickly, like fentanyl, then there's this biological switch that happens and those receptors cannot be empty. So some other, some opioid has to occupy those receptors to prevent the person from going into withdrawal.
3: Hmm.
1: Over- it's, medica-
0: it's, it's a wet, Sorry.
1: And if medication is mm-hmm. used, then those, uh, the receptors are occupied by medication, which has a very long half-life and is a very stable, uh, molecule, and can allow the person to function normally while using the medication. Mm. Unfortunately, the medications are so stigmatized that it's difficult for patients to access them and to remain on them long term. And that's where we're falling short in being able to provide medically effective treatment for substance use disorder.
0: Right. And uh, overdose is reversible. Death is not. That's what Maureen said to me during our WLRN investigation. Um, and Maureen, what, what's your organization doing to address long-term solutions to the addiction problem in, in Palm Beach County?
2: Well, we are highly supportive of uh, the initiatives coming through Palm Beach County, the Healthcare district, and JFK North with the addiction stabilization unit. So there is a place especially, you know, that people can be transferred to when they're overdosing or they have an addiction problem. We have an outpatient clinic opening up. Um, so we support that and, and, and crazy it, as it might seem that we're talking about this, but the Florida Department of Health is rolling this out in a few other uh, locations in our state. So um, we have that there to, you know, because for someone to recover, you have to keep them alive. Um, that's our first step. And yes, we have the upfront education. We need to improve that education. We need to educate parents um, and educate differently because what we're doing obviously isn't working um, and no one chooses to become addicted. You know, people, um, it's their bodily mechanisms and we have to differentiate that, you know, between our own personal experiences and the suffering. There's no one, no one wants to live the life that addicts live addicted to a substance it's just miserable
0: and and maureen talk to me about that miserable aspect of it i mean you're you're a mother uh what were some of the challenges that you had faced
2: um challenges are getting treatment legitimate treatment um you know we are ruled by the dogma of uh this uh one way to treat addiction um, which is abstinence. Well, that came through an alcohol model, okay? So we're trying to treat an opioid-addicted brain with an alcohol solution. I like to say, oh, well, yeah, let's treat prostate cancer with ovarian chemotherapy. That'll work really well, won't it? Um, so we have to, you know, look at the substance and treat each individual, and they, we need treatment one demand. Just like if you come into the, the ER with chest pain, you're going to be treated or transferred to the appropriate facility. That has to happen every day, all day long in every emergency room.
0: Maureen Killian is a mother who leads the Southeast Florida Recovery Advocates, and Dr. Mark Schlosser is an addiction medicine physician. Thank you both for your time.
1: Thank you. Good to be with you.
0: Still to come, school is back with some logistical challenges, and teachers have a lot to express about it. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. New bus routes, new outfits, new supplies, new syllabus. The first day of public school typically comes with a lot of excitement and stress for students, parents, and guardians. But during the state's ongoing teacher shortage, a few educators are expressing some anxieties of handling a successful return back to school. Anxieties such as teacher pay, cost of living, and the politics surrounding education itself. Some teachers told WLRN how they are feeling about their return to the classroom this year. Carolyn Flanagan is an educator in Broward.
3: How am I feeling about my return
4: to the classroom this year? I'm feeling an incredible mixture of joy at seeing my students' faces and also the anxiety and weight of recent legislation that was passed by the DeSantis administration I've been a teacher for over 25 years, and I've always advocated for my students. Now I feel that I cannot be true to myself or be truthful to them on a myriad of topics.
0: Joining us now to discuss the myriad of topics surrounding the return of school is David Goodhue. He's a reporter who covers the Florida Keys and South Florida for FloridaKeysNews.com and the Miami Herald. Thanks for joining us, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, now, there have been several new Florida laws that could have a huge effect on education, from parental rights in education, referred to by its critics as the Don't Say Gay Bill, to the Stop Awoke Act. Uh, what have you heard about teachers feeling their sort of high anxiety about doing their job in this school year?
5: Well, I cover the keys specifically, and there's uh, unique challenges down there that don't necessarily that aren't necessarily felt by the uh teachers in the rest of the state um specifically the keys has a very high cost of living and teachers down there are having a a really hard time finding a place to live and the district itself is having a hard time finding enough teachers to to fill the classrooms
0: Hmm. and and what are some other sort of logistical challenges heading into the school year that you've noticed
5: down uh really down there they're, they're just really trying to uh uh, find enough teachers to teach to actually teach the classrooms I mean I know the other I know the teachers in the, in the rest of the state are worrying about these
0: laws but down there they uh, kind of have bigger
5: fish to fry
0: yeah and, and why do you think schools are struggling to find teachers uh, obviously there is an ongoing teacher shortage affecting schools across uh, Florida but, but what are some of the reasons as to why schools are struggling to find teachers
5: well, I'll tell you, and the key is it's cost of living. I mean, you can down there, you could you can get a trailer for as much it, you'd pay as much money for, to live in a trailer as you would on the mainland of, to uh, live in a three-bedroom house. Uh, I'll give you an example: the the median value of a home in Key in the city of Key West is about seven hundred thousand dollars, and the uh,
0: that's compared to about uh, two hundred thirty-two thousand dollars in the rest of the state. Hmm. And it's not just teachers, David. Uh, school districts across Florida are also experiencing school bus driver shortages. I remember uh, WLRN covering that in the past. Are, are, are the are the keys experiencing the same thing with bus drivers? I'm not sure about this year. They have in the past. But I, I'm not specifically this year.
5: I'm not sure if, if if that's a how big of an issue that is. It's always an issue. But I don't
0: I don't know if this year is any any worse than the than previous years. And just and just for listeners who just uh, came on uh, that seven hundred thousand what was that referred to again? That's the medium value of a home in the city of Key West. I just wanted you to repeat that because it's absolutely absurd. <laughs> I mean that is extremely expensive, especially for teachers. Um, how is inflation uh, affecting back to school supplies for parents are our teachers and parents managing? the high school uh you know the, the, the high cost of equipping our students with the tools to learn
5: they are i mean we are, we you know of course we hear that some teachers as in previous years are you know having to supply their own classrooms and that that's 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 always been the case uh i mean parents are struggling with with it this year probably more than ever and again it goes to the key uh, you know specifically with the keys it's such a service oriented economy down there that um i mean a lot of the parents are people who uh are waiting tables tending bar cleaning uh hotel rooms working in res- other resort jobs not exactly super high paying jobs but it's a, it's a, it's a high percentage of of the economy of the of the of the jobs that the people down there have and these are the you know in turn the people that are having to you know buy the supplies for their
0: for their children at mm-hmm. higher costs this year right and, and and as a result are class sizes an issue with the shortage of teachers class sizes are,
5: are not so much of an issue but um there's about eight there's probably about between 8500 and 9000 9, students in the keys it varies year to year we've actually gained some population this year despite COVID and despite uh, our hurricane Irma about five years ago, we're back up to about eight, probably about 80,000 residents. But uh, teachers this year specifically, they're down to about 20 teachers. Um, a lot of the classrooms are being taught by either para- paraprofessionals or long-term substitutes.
0: Wow. Uh, stay with us, David. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with David Goodhue about anxieties teachers have uh, surrounding the return of school. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Uh, David, are there any sort of good news that you're hearing right now um, with the return of school?
5: Um, I mean, just the fact that, you know, it's we're um, you know, Two years out from COVID, I mean, people, students are back in the classroom. I mean, almost almost 100%. Um, I think maybe maybe some are learning from home, but I mean, the good thing is kids are kids are back in the physical classroom, they're back with their friends,
0: back with their teacher, in front of a physical teacher. Um, you know, learning as they should be learning. Right, teacher shortages, low pay politics entering the education system, teachers express some of their anxieties with WLRN, and some of that anxiety includes their personal safety.
6: Hi, my name is Michelle Isgut, and I teach pre-K at Gulliver Preparatory School in Miami, Florida. And top of mind as I go back to school this year is definitely school safety. I want to create a warm, loving, caring environment for my little ones and keep them safe and keep them feeling safe, especially in light of the school shootings that have happened uh, and have been happening, but especially recently in Uvalde, uh, the teachers at my school had a faculty meeting on Tuesday, and the woman leading the meeting mentioned Uvalde, and it was the first time I have ever sat through a faculty meeting and, and had the urge to cry. I definitely worry about the safety of my students, and... I've never thought more about putting my life on the line for them than I have going back to school this year, and it makes me care about them more deeply in a weird way, but I just feel more of a sense of responsibility for their safety this year than I ever have in my 10-year teaching career, so... It's an interesting way to start the year, for sure.
0: Teachers, please chime in. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can uh, tweet us at WLRN. Uh, David, what's your response to what Michelle said? Have you heard similar worries uh, from others?
5: Oh, of course. Um, you know, my wife's teacher herself, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a concern every year of course but then you know after uvalde especially you know it's still fresh in everyone's mind um at risk of focusing too much on the keys down there they um they have uh, monroe county sheriff's office deputies assigned to just about every school um, that does make students and teachers feel safer in the island chain i know that much
0: hmm. we have a phone caller in uh eric uh how is education different in the keys
5: Yes, I, I was
2: curious about the Keys. I know that sometimes, you know, schools try and tailor their curriculum around the local environment, and I was wondering if the kids down there get any, uh, like, boating
0: uh, lessons. So Eric is from Hollandale. Uh, David, did you hear the question?
5: Boating lessons? I'm not sure about boating lessons themselves, but I know the uh, high school in the Upper Keys, Coral Shores High School, does teach, have a specific class for uh, boat boating mechanics. It's a, it's kind of a... Um, a, a vocational uh, school for for uh, for engine work on boats and, and and things like that, which is very in demand in the archipelago.
0: And Eric, did you have another question for David? And I'm sorry, Eric. There's also
5: there's also a lot of marine science classes that you probably wouldn't get anywhere else, um, things of that nature.
0: Right, right. Um, We have another clip uh, from a teacher. uh, Nympha Gerard is a teacher in Broward. Here's her perspective on returning back to school.
7: How am I feeling about my return to the classroom? Well, I feel anxious going back into the classroom. Lately, teachers have become a target for politicians, some parents and fringe groups who are aggressively attempting to control what I am teaching and how I am teaching it. I am afraid navigating my lessons as I always have will be a problem as the truth today does not set you free, but instead has become questionable for some. Anxiety also comes from protecting my students and myself from intruders. I think about the safety drills. The intruder could possibly be a student who knows the safety procedures, the safe space within my classroom, what the safe word is. The code words when announced through the PA system. So many precautions and fear, yet I am still very excited to meet my new students. I am ready to smile with them and learn from them and teach them. I'm excited to live this awesome school year with my students. Teaching is a calling. I'm always filled with the anticipation of having a great year while in the back of my mind, I wonder what new legislation will render me at its will of what to teach and how to teach. Will this year be the end of my career, my pension after 20 plus years of teaching?
0: Um, David, you mentioned, um, you know, your wife being a teacher. Um, uh how how's her colleagues um how are they expressing their their sort of concerns and anxieties um during this sort of um you know politics encroaching how how they teach and whatnot well my wife teaches preschool so it's a little
5: different um but um honestly you know specifically in the keys right now sure that that is that is a that is a concern with politics encroaching but more down there it's a matter of you know do they have enough resources to do their jobs do they um you know do they can they hire enough enough of their colleagues to actually teach the kids and you know it's just a, making a living is more of a concern in the keys than i would argue anywhere else in florida and just so- simply, just sim- just simply being able to live in the
0: place you love and want to
5: work and live
0: right and and obviously, having concerns about making a, a decent wage <laughs> trying to live in that society can certainly affect uh you know your job and and how you work as well. Is there active participation by parents at school board meetings in the keys what what sort of concerns are they uh raising
5: yeah there there is active participation it's a the keys, even though it's a you know hundred and twenty mile plus long chain of islands. Is very much like a small town. Even even uh, e- even if you're specifically in Key West, I mean, Key West is its own city, and it's very different from a lot of the other Keys, or you know, the city of Marathon in the middle in the in the middle Keys. But the Keys as a whole operates very much like a small town. Town, it's it's, it's, it's there, there's a lot of civic uh, engagement in the school district and and in and in other areas too, like even some of the specific city councils, county commission.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like despite some of the challenges, they're still gathering up resources, gathering up, um, you know, emotional sort of comfort amongst themselves. Are, are teachers leaving the Keys more um, or or residents in general? The Keys has a high turnover with every, every every profession. So probably
5: not probably not teachers more than any other profession. I mean, the police have high turnover. Uh, state attorney's office with with prosecutors has high turnover. but um, Uh, fire departments, every, 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 just about every profession there has, has high turnover.
0: Right. And I guess the next question is, can they even afford to leave the keys in that regard?
5: Yeah. I mean,
0: affording to leave, I mean, that, that's, that's
5: on the individual on an individual basis i would I, I would say but uh yeah i mean
0: people 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 do leave so i mean obviously they're finding a way right well david goodhue uh is a reporter who covers the florida keys and the south florida for floridakeysnews.com and the miami herald uh, david goodhue thank you so much for your time thank you for having me scammers are looking for a piece of the second largest settlement fund in florida's history 800 743 wlrn 800 743 9576 I'm Wilkin Brutus welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN in May the victims of the Champlain Tower South collapse won a 1 billion dollar settlement in a class action lawsuit it's the second largest class action settlement in Florida history it was a major victory for the victims of the collapse to sort out the settlement money for the victims and those injured in the collapse claims have to be made to sort out who gets how much This process is taxing and draining on the victims and the judges sorting through the claims as the process calculates the, quote, worth of a victim. Adding to the pain of the process, scammers from across the country have found a way to put in their own claims to a piece of the settlement fund. Those bogus claims come from as far as Texas and Oregon, with so-called victims stating they were at the Champlain Tower South the night of the collapse. How are these scammers flooding the settlement claims? Will they see any repercussions? Have you had any experience with scammers after a harrowing incident? Call us and add your voice to the conversation at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN. Joining us are Miami Herald reporters Linda Robertson and Jay Weaver. Both of you, thanks for joining us and sharing your expertise. We're still. I think. Uh, is. Hold on one second. Is J- Jay? Are you still there? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, we're we're waiting oh, on good. uh, Linda. Is Linda next to you?
7: <laughs> no,
0: she's not actually, but she
4: should be joining shortly. I know she's on on the road. Um, but uh, if you wanted to get started, yeah, you can let's um. do
0: it. Let's do it. Uh, so first off, to get us started, Jay, how did these scammers catch wind of the settlement forms?
4: Well, that's the fundamental question. So you have to step back. Judge Michael Hansman, who's overseeing the class action case against all the defendants who had been originally accused of causing this building to collapse, those insurance companies ponied up one million, one billion dollar plus in damages to be distributed among 98 people who died in the collapse as well as dozens of others who were injured so the receiver for the condo association at the surfside condo put out these claims forms for, for people to file claims for whatever they could get from the Damages, And there were minimum amounts for personal injury. You know, it could be at least 50000 or more. For deaths, it could be a million dollars or more. It varied. So these claims forms were posted on a website called HustlerMoneyBlog.com. And HustlerMoneyBlog.com actually had a story about the Champlain Tower collapse and a copy of, an electronic copy of the claims form that the receiver um, who was handling it legitimately, his his claims form was on this, this illegitimate site. So these people all filled out these forms, there were 458 of them, from mostly western United States, California, Oregon, Washington, Texas, and they made these various bogus claims, and the receiver and his legal staff poured over them and discovered that almost all of them, if not all of them, were Fake, phony, and, bogus, and,
0: and, and so. And, and Jay, wait a minute. So, so, so you're saying that most of the claims are from the western part of the U.S. Like, is there a particular reason as to why that uh, geography <laughs> is is the main culprit? Well, that's that's another good
4: question. You know, I suspect it's because people from the immediate area would be too obviously found out. Um, even though we are the fraud capital of the we're wor- world take it take you know take my word for it um, and we got all kinds of scams going on here local people aren't the ones who were taking advantage of this tragedy it was people from out of state and they just made up a lot of tall tales you know and and not the hope but just with their with their bogus claims that they were deserving of at least fifty thousand dollars minimum, you know, personal injury or personal property claim, or worse still they you know might have put in a claim in for a death, but they were all from outside this area. And I think it was by design because of this blog that provided them with a kind of a uh, an avenue to tap into this 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 damage pool of a billion. And they also could make up these stories and do it from a distance. Right. And you know, people local might get caught more easily, so they didn't do it as much. And, but I th- that would be my rationale for it.
0: Yeah, and, and let's talk about those those tales. What what kinds of stories are they creating for their forms? Their their claims. Look, I'll, I'll go from the broad to the specific. You know, according to
4: Michael Goldberg, the receiver in this case, you know, he said that generally speaking, they fall into three categories. You know, one is people who are claiming to be in units that were completely destroyed and had no survivors whatsoever. So they couldn't possibly have been in the units and survived them. And so, you know, that's just not possible. Or it could be people who said that they were in a unit. that that collapsed or was partially damaged because the whole building didn't come down. Half of the building did, there were half of it that survived. And those people claimed to be in units where they couldn't have been in those units because nobody knew who they were. And then there were people who claimed to be in units that didn't even exist. In other words, they gave numbers for units that were completely made up and they couldn't possibly have lived in them because they didn't correlate with any units in the building. Now, as for specific stories, There were 458 of them, but the receiver was kind enough to provide some information about a half dozen of them. And one of them was a guy from Oregon and his story is just so over the top. He (laughs) claims he claims he drove across the country. He claims he was at a bar in Miami beach having, you know, on a vacation of a lifetime, having a great time drinking. And he had no place to stay. He was like on such a tight budget that he was sleeping in his car. And he met a guy named Luis and Luis told him, hey, bro, you know, I've got this place at Champlain Towers South. I got a friend who could put you up for the night. So they drive over there, or so his story goes. And when they're over there, it just so happens it's the middle of the night on June 24th, 2021, and the building comes tumbling down. And This guy claims that he got hit in the face with concrete, big gash in his face. He never even went inside to even meet the person he was supposedly supposed to go stay with. And he ends up being knocked out, or so he claims. And then he decides he's not going to go to the hospital because, oh, God forbid, that would cost too much money. So he doesn't go to the hospital. So he ends up instead getting knocked out, waking up, and then deciding to drive all the way back to Oregon. So he writes one of these claims forms, total bullshit. Excuse me for your audience, but it was all BS. And he basically makes up this story about how he would driven across the country, driven back, and he just thought it was a terrorist attack, and that you know, and that he suffered this terrible injury. And he's guy. He's a guy who put in a claim form for you know a minimum fifty thousand dollar injury. But there were others, you know, there were people who who were claiming that um, you know they they came, you know, from. Uh, There's this one guy from one woman from Washington who claimed that she was the mistress of a guy who lived in the building, an older man, and that she was staying with him that night. But she had gone out. And, you know, while he was there, she went out, and got a bite to eat or some food to eat or something to buy at a store. And the building came down and she you know, was lucky because she didn't die. But she was there and she suffered all this trauma. So she puts in a claim all made up all make believe and it just goes on and on and on there was a woman who claimed that she was pregnant who was there and suffered a miscarriage
0: you know
4: her name was was stephanie it just it just goes on and on and on
0: jay these stories Um, are absolutely Wild. Stay with me here. Uh, I'm Wilkin Brutus. Hi. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with uh, re- with reporter Jay Weaver about scammers trying to take advantage of a settlement fund from the Surfside tragedy. Now, 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 Jay, what's the chance of a fake claim going through, or a legitimate claim being flagged as fake?
4: Well, before, before I get into that, I just want to tell you one more story that just popped into my mind. It was a Texas minister who claimed to be from a Baptist church in Dallas. And I'll keep it real simple, but he was claiming $3 million for six units that didn't even exist, that didn't even exist. And he was, he was claiming that they were given to church members at the Baptist church in Dallas. And he was claiming, you know, personal property losses and unit losses and everything else and, you know, he was asking for, you know, compensation for 40 la- forty uh, laptops, I think. I mean, it just went on and on. He detailed all this nonsensical stuff, and he wanted a total of $3.1 million. And it was incredible. And he was totally make-believe. So what are the chances of any of these things going through? Zero. Because the receiver already flagged him. So they're holding a hearing on August 24th, which is coming up. And they're basically going to just <laughs> – determine that all these claims were bogus. If somebody shows up and wants to make a legitimate claim, they can. But these are very different and separate from claims that are being reviewed legitimately by Judge Hansman and a colleague named Judge Colby. They are currently looking through the 98 death claims. And I'd say they're more than two thirds of the way through those, they will complete them by the end of the month. Those claims are being heard and private by the judge, along with some personal injury claims and some personal property claims. There are some people who can make legitimate claims and Michael Goldberg, the receiver knows all of them. He will be able to determine who's getting what. Some get a minimum of 50,000, some get a million dollars for a death and some could qualify for tens of millions of dollars because of the nature. There could be multiple deaths, one unit, Several family members died, lost earnings over a lifetime, pain and suffering. All these things factor in. So the judge is now going through these very emotional private hearings with the legitimate claimants. The illegitimate ones, we'll see if anybody shows up on August
0: 24th. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. We're kind of running out of time very briefly. uh, Are there any repercussions for for, for uh, for those filing fake claims?
4: Well, let's put it this way. I doubt the court and authorities at the state attorney's office are going to try to track these people down. But if anybody has the audacity to show up in court and is a phony claimant and makes a fake claim, I'm pretty sure that the judge will refer that person for a you know, a perjury charge of some kind by the state attorney's office and for making a false claim and for committing fraud. I mean, you know, this case even has the potential to go federal because this hustler money blog lists not just these kinds of class action cases that we just talked about at Surfside, but even other class actions. They list them all over the country.
0: And Jay gotta and stop you that's there. How these people come. Jay, Thank you so much for your time. Jay Weaver, Miami Herald, federal reporter doing an, an exceptional job highlighting this story again. Thank you so much for your time, Jay Weaver. Thank you, sir. Take care. You, too. Finally, on the Roundup, the WLRN Newsroom said, see you later this month to someone who fundamentally shaped who we are and how we bring your stories from around South Florida alicia zuckerman was most recently our editorial director and executive editor of on-demand audio where she helped develop and edit audio documentaries and our series and podcasts like tallahassee takeover it's a bittersweet goodbye we're sad to see her go but incredibly proud as well alicia has been named a 2022-2023 john s knight journalism fellow at stanford university She will focus on finding ways to expand access to audio journalism and create a better user experience for people with hearing loss. But she goes back in this newsroom a long time, and she is the founding producer of the Florida Roundup. So we have a lot to thank her for. Alicia shaped the WLRN Newsroom in many ways. This program is one of them. She taught us how to make proper latkes.
3: This is WLRN News. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. Tonight's the last night of Hanukkah and there is a lot of advice in the world about how to make potato latkes and all the ways you can screw them up. I was on the phone talking about this recently with one of my oldest friends, Brett Rothfeld. He's also my go-to cooking consultant and he's a sound engineer so he recorded that conversation. Then we made latkes together with me in Miami Beach and Brett in Portland, Oregon. Your grandmother made latkes? Uh-huh. What do you remember about
0: them? Um they were oniony. <laughs> She's BFFs with author Judy Bloom.
3: This is WLRN News. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. The author Judy Bloom turns 80 today, and she was celebrated yesterday at the bookstore she runs with her husband in Key West.
1: The cupcakes are for me, the mimosas are for you. I'm a cupcake girl.
3: Judy Bloom celebrated her 80th birthday surrounded by cupcakes and books. She works long days at the Books and Books in Key West. After she wrote her last novel, she said it was her last big writing project. Then the author of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Superfudge, and Summer Sisters decided to get into the other side of the book business
0: she took the time to painstakingly help our South Florida community come together to record and remember the history of Hurricane Andrew.
3: Hurricane Andrew hit South Dade overnight during the early, early hours of August 24, 1992. We spent a lot of time now talking to people about what they remember. And besides the sound of the wind, the breaking glass, the transformers blowing, and, and people remember one you, voice.
7: Friends. This is the time to do it. Get to that in- interior closet. Get a mattress over your head, get your family in there, and just wait this thing out.
3: TV meteorologist Brian Norcross stayed on the air for 23 straight hours during Hurricane Andrew.
0: And this particularly resonates now as we come up on the 30th anniversary of the storm next week. Alicia also championed the O to the zip code that we facilitate here on WLRN with O Miami.
3: I'm Alicia Zuckerman. As Scott said, I'm Editorial Director here at WLRN, and I am, have the great honor of being able to kind of sit back and listen to not only the poems, but listen to what where the poems came from. That's, I think, some of my favorite that's one of my favorite parts about all of this every year is just listening to how these poems came into the world came into existence and so you know you've been hearing uh zip odes on wlrn all month and we hope to put more of these odes odes tears of codes on the radio
0: for me personally i remember our editing sessions where we'd go off script to talk about the beauty of different cultures so, thank you, Alicia Zuckerman. This program and the rest of our newsroom will continue your legacy of bringing a sense of place to the radio. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced, produced by Natu Twe, our engagement editors, Katie Cohen, our interim managing editors, Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news, Christine DiMatte is the interim newscast editor, Matthew Sanchez is our digital, digital editor. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisors, Peter J. Mayers, Richard Ives, answers phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.
5: LRN Public Media.